0: Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. All right, we're familiar with that video, aren't we? You know what that means, right? Back to Romans, right? Back to uh, back to Romans and um, we actually came to, a, uh, came to a good point, a good stopping point before we hit the holiday season and went into our Christmas series. And so uh, we're actually picking up in a brand new section, if you will, uh, of the book of Romans. And so that is helpful because we came to a good stopping point. Now we're almost picking up and going into and moving into kind of a new, um, uh, kind of a new focus, if you will, uh, in the book of Romans. Paul shifts a little bit and he explained the theology of the gospel. Why we need the gospel, the fact that we are all sinners, uh, the fact that we are all in need of grace and mercy. And now we're going to shift into what does that mean for how we live our life, the practical application. See, Paul was your typical, uh, was your typical Baptist preacher, I guess you could say. Um, usually when you, uh, when you preach a sermon, you want to give understanding of what the word is saying and then apply that to how uh, we're to live our life. And so that's what Paul did here in the letter. So we're moving from theology uh, into practical application. So as our lights come on this morning and uh, we read our text, let's pick up in beginning in chapter 6, verse number one, and it says this, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, so we too ought to walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self, what we looked at in chapters 1 through 5, was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. I love this passage right here. Death no longer rules over him. Amen? For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Here we go again. You are not under the law, but you are under grace grace. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time that we have had to worship you this morning and I pray Father that it has been pleasing to you. I pray this morning that as we get in your word, we begin to feed from it. Father, I pray that we would receive everything that our souls desperately need. God, I, I need you personally. I need you. And I need your word. I need what you have for me this morning. And I pray that we would trust you and that we would hear what you have to say this morning as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Just a real quick checkup before we get into, before we get headlong into the message. How's everybody doing with their New Year's resolutions? Everybody doing okay? Y'all doing all right? Okay, some of you? I'm not. I'm not doing good. I'm not doing good. I I thought I would do good, and I'm not. Um, I've already thrown in the towel. I'm going to try to pick it back up tomorrow, I guess. Uh, I'm I'm basically going week to week with my resolutions, okay? Uh, I do good Monday through Friday, and then the week hits. I was doing good until snowpocalypse hit. And then like everybody else, I wanted French toast. For some reason, when the snow started, I wanted French toast because, you know, had to go get the milk, had to go get the eggs, had to go get the bread. Um, and, and, and French toast is best when you got good old butter that you cook it into. Actually, I didn't eat any French toast, but I did eat some eggs and things. We're getting a little bit of a hum if you, I don't know what's, I'm, I'm hearing it at least and maybe it's just me. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting ready to have a heart attack or something. Who knows? Uh, anyway, that don't want to scare people. I'm just kidding. Um, but while we're still in the first half of January, I pray that you're still embracing the uh, embracing the new, embracing the new year, embracing the fact that we have a clean slate. I tell you what, when it snows, you can tell I'm happier, can't you? You can just tell them. For some reason, it's the snow when I look out and I see all that just, all that just white, you know, blank canvas out there. For some reason, it just does something to my spirit, and then I start to walk my dog, and then it changes every perspective that you think of anyway. But um, hopefully you're still embracing the new and you're, you're hoping to put off the old and, 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 and accept what comes with the new year. And that's actually the underlying sentiment of the passage that we're studying this morning as we jump back into Romans. Because Romans 6 gives us a transition into a new section of focus in Paul's letter to the Roman believers. Because, because like I said, Paul, uh, Paul gives us a theological foundation of the gospel, the need for the gospel, the fact that we're all sinners. We need redemption. And we saw that our sin is not just a little thing, right? Sin, is not, sin may be a little word, but it is a huge problem. Sin kills. Sin separates us from God. Sin distorts our view of reality, and it distorts everything about us. It kills every aspect of us. So much so that we don't even realize that we're walking in death. And all we know from the very beginning is the effects of sin. And so we just try to manage life under the weight of sin. But the gospel declares that there is a different way. There is a better way, and that is to live in the victory of Jesus Christ. And so when we left off, we looked at how God had remedied the curse of sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his son. While Adam and Eve brought sin and cursed all of us under the weight of sin. And don't get mad at Adam and Eve because along the way, somebody would have sinned. We would have sinned eventually, I believe. Because that's just kind of what we got in our heads. All right, we've got that sin nature. Because Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible says, and Paul said this in Romans in the last section that we looked at, was that death by sin came by one man, but by one other man, grace came in the world, and life, and redemption, and salvation through the Son of Man, through the man Jesus Christ. And so that's what we looked at. And now we shift into a new understanding of since we have the gospel, since salvation is available, since salvation is available to all, and since we have this new life in Christ, what does it mean to embrace the new life that we've been given? Paul argues that the gospel has changed everything. The gospel has made everything new. Understanding that once we get saved, it's not just, hey, I prayed a special prayer and I got a magic get out of hell free card and I live my life now. No, you were raised from death to life. Nothing is is the same. You were changed from dead to life. You were recreated in the image of Jesus Christ. Everything is new. And here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or he is a new creation. In the Greek, it uses that word metamorpho, which is where we get our word for metamorphosis. Does anybody remember like eighth grade science class? When metamorphosis, what's the greatest example of metamorphosis, right? A caterpillar that goes into a cocoon and comes out a butterfly. It's not going into that cocoon just to grow wings. The caterpillar goes into the cocoon and is completely redistributed and recreated into a butterfly. It's a completely new being. That's what salvation does for us. That's what the gospel has done for us. We are totally new if we're in Christ. So I wrestled with what to title the message. I was like, you know, new life, new you you know, out with the old, in with the new, something like that. So I just did go ahead and embrace the cheese in, in all those New Year's mantra. And I decided to title the message this morning, In With The New, how the gospel has given us new life in Christ. So I want to look at a couple of things this morning from our passage um, that Paul gives us that we need to embrace because I don't think sometimes we understand completely what it means to be in Christ Jesus. What is this newness that I have? We are a new creation. We have had all things made new. But what does that mean for me? How does that minister to my heart and to my spirit? So number one, as believers in Jesus Christ, if we're in Christ, we have number one, a new nature. There's been a new nature that is given to us. So Paul begins this new section of Scripture, basically building off of chapters 1 through 5, this beautiful treatise of the gospel and understanding of how good God has been to us by giving us grace when we don't deserve it. And he says, okay what am I supposed to do with it? And so he begins with a rhetorical question. I love the way that Paul writes. I kind of think if I were back in those days, I would probably like to hang out with Paul. Now he's going to blow me away at chess or anything intellectual because the dude was extremely smart. But I love the way he presents his arguments, almost like an attorney, almost like a lawyer. He begins to ask questions to get us to think. And that's what he does in verses one and two of our text. Look what it says. He says, what should we say then? Or in in in, in light of all the things that we've just gone over in chapters one through five, in, in light of all of those things, what should we do? How should we live? It's an invitation to assess the past and assess what the gospel has changed in us. What should we say then? It calls us back to chapters one through five where we saw that we're hopelessly lost without Jesus and he's our only hope and that he willingly became the atonement for our sins and he has given us new life in Jesus Christ. That while our sins may be great, God's grace is greater, right? We, we still believe that as, as, as a church, right? That while our sins may be great, God's grace is greater, right? Like we can't lose that belief because if we lose that belief, we're going to lose the motivation for a lot of things. We're going to lose the motivation to witness. We're going to lose the motivation to evangelize. We're going to lose the motivation to praise him because I was once in sin, but now I've been found by Jesus Christ and he set me free, Right? He never runs out of mercy and grace. And in my sin, he had plenty of mercy and grace to not just rub on me and had just enough. No, he had fountains and oceans of mercy and grace to drown me in, to cover my sin debt and set me free. He says, so what should we say then? Look back on the goodness of God is basically what he's saying. And then he says, should we continue in sin so that grace may just multiply? Because what he had said in verse in chapters through five is that God has so much grace, he'll never run out. You can sin and sin and sin, but God's grace is able. And so what he's saying is, now let's not get off on our theology and think, well, since God's grace is going to cover me, I can just go ahead and live any way I want to and just go ahead and ride my free ticket into heaven. He says, should I go ahead and just sin so that grace may be more abounded, so that God can just continue to spew out his grace? If I sin more, God's grace will be seen more and won't that be awesome? What's the best way for a believer to manifest the grace of God? Is it so that we sin so that God gives us more grace or is it so that we live as agents of grace to show those in the world that sin is not the way? And Paul is saying this. Should I continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Should I just go ahead and sin and not worry about my sin? I'm going to go to heaven, so I'm just going to live my life. Or is the gospel just a get out of hell free card? Is that the only reason that Jesus died? Just to give me a ticket to heaven? Is that the only reason that Jesus went to the cross? Just so I could go to heaven? I believe that we're selling the cross way short when we only look at it as like a monopoly piece that says get out of hell free. Jesus went to the cross for so much more than just taking us to heaven. And we may look at it and say, that's what I needed the most. And you're right. But what I also need today until I get to heaven is God's presence in my life. What I also need is the Holy Spirit leading me and guiding me and illuminating me to truth. So that while I walk and I live in this present darkness, I can be a light to a lost world around me. He says, should I continue in sin so the grace may, may multiply? So this rhetorical question is, so since God is so good, should we just go on being bad? And then he says this, there's an obvious answer in verse number two. He says, absolutely not. To put it in good old Kentucky rhetoric, are you silly or are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Is what Paul is basically saying. The New Testament in modern English by John Phillips translates it like this. What a ghastly thought falls just short of what a heretical thought almost. See, basically, what Paul was asking, he's saying, hey, let's not embrace the idea of spiritual license, that since I'm covered, I can do whatever I want. That's not the attitude and the idea to have as children who've been set free by Jesus Christ. Since I've got an irrevocable ticket to heaven, I'll just live it up and sin until I get to heaven and enjoy all the good stuff that has that there is to offer for me in heaven. See, this reveals a heart that is still set on sinful desire rather than a heart that is overcome by worship and reverence for the one who set him free. It's a defining question. It's a defining question. He says this in the latter part of verse number two. He says, how can we who died still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? This question really defines the total change that the gospel is supposed to produce. The gospel says that we have died to sin, right? We've died to sin so that we may live to something else, so that we may live to righteousness. See, when I get saved, I don't just become a better version of me because there's nothing good to offer. There's nothing to improve upon. Everything has to be leveled and start over again. I am brand new. I'm a new creation. I have died to my old self so that I may live in something else. Why? Because my old self was what killed me. My old self is what killed me. If something is killing you, your best course of action is to stop doing the thing that's killing you, right? Right? We hear that from the doctor all the time. Lose weight, you'll do better. Look, man, you got high blood pressure. You need to stop eating salt. What do, I, what do we normally do, though? We're stubborn, right? What do we do? <laughs> yeah, that's good advice for those other people in all the tests that have been run for years, but I'm different. I'm a loophole. I'm gonna beat this. no. Oh. If something is killing us, the best thing to do is to stop killing is to stop killing ourselves with it. But spiritually, what we do is we say, hey man, I want heaven, but I also want as much of hell as I can find out there too. And we think that's the key to happiness in life and God's cool with that. God just wants me to be happy at the end of the day. What Paul is saying is that the gospel has called us to a place where we have died to what was killing us and we are now resurrected in Christ to live apart from that deadly way. See, what sense does it make to run back to it? Next week, we're going to look at that more in the context as Paul uses the illustration of a slave to a new master. But basically, suffice it to say this, is it's ridiculous to go and continue to do the things that are killing us if we've been given new life and a new lease on life. And here's, here's something that you may not like to hear, but I think we need to hear this. If you can characterize your Christian life and your Christian existence by a desire to go to heaven... While at the same time having an equal desire to live as close as possible as you can to hell. That tells a lot about the heart that we have. That tells a lot about how much sanctification still needs to take place. And you may want to assess whether you have truly been given a regenerated heart. And I say that with all the love in my heart because I also, we all battle that too because just because we get saved, it doesn't mean that all of the sinful flesh goes away. The temptations are still there and in some ways, the temptations become greater. Satan turns it up a notch on us because now he's lost us and he's trying to keep us down. But if our desire is, I want to go to heaven, but I also want to have as much of hell as I can find here on earth and enjoy it, there becomes a problem. There is, there's a stunted growth in our sanctification. And my fear is that too many people will think that that statement is just too legalistic or too old school or not seasoned with enough grace for this modern era that we're in. After all, God's love, right? God is love. So therefore, love means, and the way we're defining love today within our society, and within our context is love means permission. Love means an open, permissive Just do what you want and I'm always going to love you and there's never going to be any ramification for what you do. Yes, God is love. Yes, he is endless and boundless in his mercy and his grace. But no, he is not permissive when it comes to our sin. And that doesn't make sense in our context today, in our changing culture. Because love means permission. But love means wanting the best for the person that I love. See, if if God were permissive to sin, that would make him the most heinous and sadistic father to Jesus that you could ever imagine. Because if God could just look at our sin and say, you know what, no biggie, then that means he was some sort of monster that just put Jesus Christ on the cross for no reason whatsoever. Because if sin did not have to be paid for, if sin was something that God could just say, let's overlook it, then why did he put Jesus Christ on the cross? Then we can't trust him to be a loving, merciful father for us if he, as the father of the only begotten son of God, would put a perfect one who didn't deserve death on the cross for those of us who did deserve death because of our sin. But if, if in actuality my sin doesn't bring death and God's going to be okay with everything I do, And he killed Jesus for no reason. And I don't know if we can follow a God like that. And a God like that doesn't exist in the Bible. See, sin kills. Sin kills. Straight up and straightforward. And sin always kills. And all sin has a deadly component. And if we're truly called out of sin into the light of the gospel, we don't have an overwhelming desire to run back to what killed us. Does our flesh want to? Absolutely. But our spirit will never desire sin. Ever. And I think we're at a dangerous place where we're beginning to redefine what the spirit should call sin today in our society. See, my new nature is one that desires life in Christ, not death in sin. So we have a new nature. But number two, we also, as new believers in Christ, we have a new relationship. So we've, we've heard the phrase before, it's all about who you know, Right? It's all about who you know. How many of you know someone famous? You know someone famous, okay. We're just not very cool people, are we? (laughs) We got one person that knows someone famous, right? My biggest claim to fame was I was related distantly to someone who was part of a boy band in the 90s, but that doesn't get me very far right now, right? See, we've all heard the phrase, it's all about who you know, and that's true. Before Jesus, though, all we really know is sin and death, before Jesus, that's all we know. And the gospel provides us with this new relationship, right? This new relationship where not only do we know righteousness and truth, but we know the Savior. We know the Father. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us and he walks with us and he talks with us and he hears us and he knows the number of hairs on our head and he knows the number of, sand, of grains of sand on the seashore and he catches every tear that falls We are in a close relationship with the God of this universe through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's all about who you know. When you stand before God one day and he says, why should I let you into heaven? It's all going to be about who you know. Do I know Jesus Christ? It's going to be about the relationship. I have a new relationship in Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4 of our text. He says, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we may walk in the newness of life. See, this new relationship that I've been given is a relationship that, first of all, changes my identity. I've got a new nature, but now I have a new identity. It's usually, it's, it's, it's in just about every culture, it's pretty much the practice that when someone get mar- gets married, they combine the name. Usually it's the woman, the spouse that takes the husband's name and changes the name, right? It's a new identity, but really all that is is a name change. This relationship in Christ is a complete change of identity. It says that we are baptized into Christ, if you see that in our text. See, that Greek word baptizo means to immerse. That's why here at our church, when we baptize, we go through the trouble of getting a pool together and putting it out and warming it up. Huh most of the time, and having people get get completely wet from head to toe here in church. And is it logistically a good idea to do? No, we could probably sprinkle people and it'd be a lot better to do. But the Bible gives us the understanding that baptism is by immersion, head to toe. There's a lot of symbolic reasons, but that's not really what I'm here to talk about. But that word baptizo means to immerse or to dip in. But there's also a secondary meaning that's applied in ancient literature as well. It goes deeper in its meaning. Get it immersed and goes deeper. Um, It was used in classic literature across cultures to picture a blacksmith when he would forge a weapon like a sword back in the old days. And he would start with iron or a precious metal uh, and he would melt it down or get it so hot to where he would make it malleable. You know, you've seen, you've seen those videos of, of the iron and it's hot and they got this guy and he's beating on the, you know, he's beating on the, uh, beating on that metal and it's making this loud clanging sound, just fashioning it where it needs to go. Every once in a while, he'll take that hot metal and he'll take it and he'll dip it into some cold water and you hear that steam and everything happen. And what he's doing is he's not just cooling it off, but he's also tempering that metal. And that shock of going from hot to cold real quick tempers that metal. It makes it stronger over time. And so what happens is it's beginning to change the identity of that metal. It goes from being a soft metal that can be worked with and takes it to a hard metal that is used for battle. It becomes a weapon that can be used and can be trusted. When we are baptized, and Paul is talking here, he says we are baptized. We are immersed into Christ We are being tempered by Christ. Our identity changes. He gives us a new identity in Christ rather than in sin. See, once we are saved, we are no longer in sin, under sin, mastered by sin. We are now in Christ, free from sin, mastered by Jesus Christ. He changes us from death to life and he changes us from dead in sin to dead to sin. I get it, they're both two-letter words, but they are hugely different. We are no longer, catch this church, we are no longer dead in sin. We are now dead to sin. So we have a new identity. And he says, we're baptized into his death. That sounds weird. It sounds dark, doesn't it? This is sometimes why people kind of jump back when they read some of scripture and they think about Christianity and many times people say, "It's it's a religion of death, it's a religion of blood. But what we don't understand is because of the blood of Christ, it's changed the tone of death completely. We are baptized into his death. It seems dark on the surface, but it's beautiful. Why would I want to be baptized into the death of Christ? Because there's a huge difference between our death and the death of Christ. You see, when we die, the reason we die today is because we're victims of the sin nature. As death came by one man, we physically die because of the curse of sin. I'm aging and I'm getting older and I know that every day that goes by brings me one day closer to when my body will succumb to death because our bodies are still under that curse. But our spirits are under a different thing now in Christ Jesus. But see, we die because of sin. Because we die because we're in sin. But when Jesus died, he didn't die being conquered by sin. He died to conquer sin. His death is totally different. So what this passage is telling me is that I am no longer, when I die, I will not die a death that is sad and final, but I die a death that is a promotion to eternity in Jesus Christ. I've been baptized into a death that leads to life, not living in a life that is saddled by death. I hope, I hope that I was able to like... Verbalize that the way I needed to do. I hope I hope you get this. Okay, because you're just sitting there kind of like yeah That's cool Like understand this Jesus has changed everything when Jesus died. He didn't die conquered by death. He died to conquer death and We are now baptized into that that means that even when this body wears out one day and it dies I'm not conquered by death death has been conquered by my Savior and I'm with him for eternity It's one that changes our identity, but it's one that changes our direction. Look at the latter part of verse number four. Just as Christ was raised by, from the death by the glory of the Father, so we too also are. Just like Jesus had his direction changed. When Jesus died on the cross, his body succumbed to death, but God the Father raised him to life everlasting, and Jesus does that for us. Colossians chapter 1 says he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. It means that when I was walking around lost and undone in darkness, wandering around in the weeds and in the forest of sin and drowning in it, Jesus plucked me out, he rescued me, he set my feet upon a solid rock, and now I have new life in him. I have a new identity. I'm no longer lost in the woods. I'm walking firmly upon the rock, the solid rock of Jesus Christ. I am so much better off than I was when I was born because now I've been born again in Jesus Christ. He changes our identity and he changes our direction and he changes us and he gives us a constant fellowship with him. That new relationship is a relationship that doesn't go away. We've had friends that have come and gone You may have spouses who are now ex-spouses. You may have kids who you're at odds with right now or family members that you're at odds right now. But Jesus is the constant companion that never leaves us or forsakes us. He says in chapter, or in verse number four, the latter part of it says, you are now called to walk in the newness of life. That's a nod to the companionship that we have in Christ. You see, the idea in scripture of walking is always kind of bridged with the idea of relationship and communion and building knowledge of one another. Walking together in scripture always leads to closeness. Some of you may have had a walking regimen in your life. I've tried to get one, but (laughs) that doggone snow. It's just hard to get out and walk, you know, and keep up. That doggone snow, all right? But how do you like to go on walks? Okay, how do you like to go on, when you go on walks, you don't want to go on walks alone because why, why suffer by yourself, right? I, there's these ladies that walk through our neighborhood sometimes. And you'll see them, you know, groups of them that are walking and everything and, you know, one of them is really getting to it. You know, they got their power step and the other. But, but while they're walking, they're also doing something else. They're talking to each other, right? They're catching up on the day or something like that. Noelle and I, we like to go, and we've gotten to where we like to go walk nature trails, and we like to hike at the park that's right near our house and stuff. And I keep promising I'm going to take her to a real trail over at Natural Bridge sometime. And, but I'm trying to build myself up to that, okay? Because, uh, you know, you want to be able to talk, but I'll, ch- I'll check in with her. How was your day at school? What was going on? Everything like that. You know, it's just kind of our way. The other day, we went out. Since we're the only ones who really like the cold in our family, we went out and we did walk in the snow. And so while we're walking, we're, we're talking. I remember when I was younger and still living at home and about ready to, you know, move out and things. Mom would walk and she'd say, hey, you want to go with me? And sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't, but every time I did, I came back feeling that I was closer to my mom. When we walk with people, we usually talk and we get to know them. It's, it grows our relationship with someone. Something very tragic happened in the Garden of Eden all the way back in the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned, and chapter 5 told us that sin came through Adam, when Adam and Eve sinned, not only did they get cast out of the garden, but God's daily appointments of walking with them in the cool of the day got canceled too. See, Adam and Eve knew that when they sinned, they were naked and they said something. They said, we need to cover our sin and we need to hide from God because they knew God was coming around. Why? Because he was always coming around. He walked with him. He was a closeness, a fellowship. And that got broken by sin. Now that we are saved because of the gospel, what Paul is saying, I can now walk. That garden walk has been restored to us. Just like the old hymn says, he walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. That walk is established. Walk in the newness of life. We should walk with him. And I think we've come to a good stopping point this morning. We're going to look at two more points next Sunday. But as we come to a stopping point, I just want to ask you a question. This new life that you have in Christ, have you fully come to embrace it? Have you fully come to embrace the life that you have in Jesus Christ? Some of you have been saved for a long time. And as you walk In this world, you can stub your toe. You get battle scars. Jesus has always been there, but it doesn't mean that we don't go through pain. It doesn't mean that we don't go through troubles. As you have found God good in your life, has it led you to trust him more? Or has it led you to be fearful? Because that relationship that we have with the Lord should be one, as we walk in the newness of life, it should be one that we can pour out our troubles, we can pour out our trials, but he will pour out his healing balm upon us. When was the last time that you just took a walk with Jesus and said, God, we need to talk? He might be waiting for that opportunity. You see, he doesn't force himself on us. He says, we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. That's something that I'm having to kind of come to in my relationship with Christ, mentioned last week, you know, it's these past couple years have been difficult and it looks like it may you know, if things don't change it could get more, you know. The last time that we took a walk with Christ and literally just sat down in the relationship that we had with Him and embraced the life that we've been given in Him. One that has given us a new nature. A new nature that is not predicated by death and the fear of death but one that is predicated by the joy that we have of having life given to us. Life that has been given to us eternally. Life that we don't deserve. None of us deserve it. None of us. And the American way is to say, well, I'm just gonna pick myself up by my bootstraps and I'm gonna prove that I'm worth something. The word of God tells us that in our sin, we are dead. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone gives us our worth are you finding that in him are you finding your worth in him are you finding it in what you can do at work or how much money you can make or what you drive the status symbols that you enjoy if that's where it's at that's where it'll stay and all those things deteriorate over time only Jesus is eternal only Jesus is eternal and so the question that I have as we close out this morning, have you come to know Jesus Christ? Because as verse number five says, and we'll close out with this, if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, then we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Jesus died not as, not as a victim of sin, but he died as a victor over sin, so that we who have been victimized by sin can be made victors. And when he rose from the dead, he gave us life eternal. Many times, the suffering on the cross gets the press. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gets the glory. You see, the believers in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, they really really preach the power of the resurrection. A lot of times we are tempted to preach the power of the crucifixion. And there's power in the crucifixion, but the crucifixion alone doesn't say the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that he paid the debt, but then the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he conquered the grave. Are we living in the power of his resurrection as well? Are we living baptized into his death and baptized into his resurrection? If you don't know Christ this morning, if you're watching us or if you're if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, or you've been doubting, or you've been struggling, you need to talk, today's a great day to do it. Today's a great day to do it. Reach out to us at gracewaylex at gmail.com or just go to our website, gracewaylex.org and connect with us there. But if you have a question, we want to talk with you. If you're here this morning, I want to talk with you. If you don't know Christ or you're just struggling in your relationship struggling to find that identity in him struggling to find that constant companionship with him let's talk Heavenly Father I pray that you'll have your will and way in this time that we haven't left together this morning as decisions are being made or as we're called to a place of reflection upon your word move in this place in Jesus precious name we pray Amen i nice.